I'm Olympic and world champion diver, Laura Wilkinson, and this is the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Each week, we are unlocking the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual tools that help athletes reach their biggest goals in sports. Buckle up. We have a huge treat for you today. Bonnie Blair was the first American Winter Olympian to win six career Olympic medals, and she was the first American woman to win five Olympic gold medals. Bonnie's speed skating days started at the ripe old age of two. In fact, she literally could not remember life before skating. What began as a fun family affair turned into one of the most epic sports careers in American history. But talking with Bonnie, you would never know. She's funny, open, honest, and in fact, she's so down to earth that you're going to feel like you're friends with her by the end of the episode. Her career spanned four Olympic games, and we literally lost track of the world championships along the way. And some of Bonnie's most memorable moments during her journey may surprise you. In our conversation, we laughed, we reminisced, we may have cried a little, and she closed out our chat by giving me some of the best advice that I'm taking to heart, and so should you. But before we get into this incredible episode, please take a minute to subscribe and give us a five-star review. It really does mean so much to me personally as I read all of the reviews and it inspires me and it also enables us to keep bringing on these amazing guests like the legend Bonnie Blair. And as my gift to you for listening today, I have a freebie that contains five smart strategies for confidence. Go snag it right now at laurawilkinson.com slash learn. All right, I believe that there's gold in your future, so let's dive on into this episode. All right, it's my pleasure to welcome Bonnie Blair to the Pursuit of Gold podcast today. Bonnie, I'm so glad you could join us today. Yeah, nice to be with you too. Yeah, excited to uh, chat and see where our conversation leads us. I know that's always the most exciting part. <laughs> okay, well, you use, I love to get people's backstory on how they started their sport, but you started skating at the ripe old age of two. So <laughs> what what is the background of this? I know you have six siblings, or you're the youngest of six, I guess. So do you even remember life without skating? Yeah, I, I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember <laughs> learning, you know, none of that. But yeah, being the youngest and actually the youngest by quite a bit, you know, that's what the family did. You went to the rink. So they figured they could put me on skates. That's what they did. They didn't have small enough ones. So the story goes that they just left my shoes on and put my feet right inside <laughs> of skates. And so, yeah. So, you know, I like one of my earlier memories, you know, cause they had me rate, I was racing at the age of four What? and like my memory was, so growing up in Illinois, we had, you know, a bunch of meets that were just only a, amongst the Illinois teams. And so everybody had a number on their back. And that's how, like, when you went across the finish line, the judges would look and go, okay, that person got first, second, or third or whatever. But like my number on my back was five. So, you know, kind of all growing up, it was five. But I just remember when I was four thinking, oh, it's going to be so cool that I'm going to be five and my number on my back is five. <laughs> so that's like, that's what I remember. You know, I don't remember learning to skate. I don't, but just thinking, oh, you know, five's on my back and then I'm going to be five like <laughs> next year or whatever. So, um, awesome. but yeah, I I don't remember a whole lot, but it was a family thing we did. Like my mom would have been sometimes one of those judges. 
on the the starting line or the finish line, I guess I should say. And then my dad would be a timer at the finish line. And, you know, my brothers and sisters all kind of skated. But like I said, I kind of came around way last. So a lot of them were almost done by the time I started, really started racing. But it really had been a family thing and was that way for sure a lot in my generation and my siblings' generations. It was a family thing that everybody did. Yeah. Well, did you ever did you ever get tired of it? Or was that just since that's just what you did? It's just what you did. You never really thought about it. Yeah, a little, a little, I guess a little bit of both. I, I never really thought like, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. There was a time when they threatened to close our rink in the Champaign, Illinois area where I grew up. And it was an oversized hockey rink. So I, I, I grew up doing what a lot of people know as short track, what Apollo Ono did, but, you know, also skated on bigger tracks. And like I said, we skated amongst other teams in Illinois, we would go and skate on lakes in the wintertime. And they wouldn't be quite a 400 meter track, but they wouldn't be as small as a, as a, a short track track. But because our rink was a little bit bigger, it kind of worked out that I could kind of train for both and not really be too interrupted. But at one point, our rink was threatening that it was going to close down. And I was kind of like, well, I guess I'll be done skating. And I, I was probably... You know, I want to say maybe fifth grade, fourth grade, you know, kind of in that area. And my dad was like, well, should we just move the family to Wisconsin? And, you know, yeah, Wisconsin was way is more of where they had a lot of the skating going on. But I was like, we're not going to move the family to Wisconsin. Like, are you nuts? (laughs) Like, so my dad wanted to do that. But like, I wasn't willing, like you know, I got friends here and this is where I grew up. And, you know, didn't even enter my mind that people would do something like that. But luckily, yeah, our our rink never closed down. And so I just kind of kept skating. And that was probably the only thing that would have sent me another direction or whatever. Otherwise, I, to this day, I love it. You know, my daughter's skating now, I enjoy going to the rink and skating with her. Now, it's not as fun if you don't skate pretty, you know, religiously. Right. Um, because <laughs> then, yeah, you're just, you're not in shape for it. And I, granted, I don't have the power and stuff, but I could do slower laps and, and inter- some interval stuff with some of the kids and, and still like, you know, get a grin on my face. So, you know, that, that, and I think that's a big part of whatever we do in our life is, finding that love, finding that passion and probably one of the reasons why you're still diving, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. Total. Well, there's something like when you love what you do, it's like something you always go back to and it kind of feels like home, right? You know, it's very yeah. nostalgic and it just, yeah, it just kind of lights you up inside. I-, I love that you still get out there sometimes. I know you said you're sometimes more of a videographer for uh, the athletes, but... <laughs> right, but I, love that but, you I still, but I still get out there. Right? Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh. Well, okay, at 15, you made the national teams and or the national team. And it looks like kind of that's when things... Kind Kind of picked up for you. Is that right? Yeah, kind of right around in that area. You know, short track was probably my, that kind of was a little bit of a leap for me. And, and I started making world teams on the short track end. So I, I was kind of probably having a little bit more success there. 
However, on the long track end is where they probably really, you know, would have like national teams and more gatherings and, and training camps and stuff like that. So at the 80 Olympic trials, I wound up being eighth in the 500 with hardly ever skating long track before. Wow. I didn't even realize you went to that trials. Wow. Yeah. On a whim, kind of the weekend before someone's like, oh, you should do some long track races. And I'm like, because I was up there for more of what we would, you know, it's like short track, but we called it pack style. So, you know, heat semifinals with a bunch of people all on the line at once, but we would still do that on the same track that they would do long track races on. And so I'm like, okay, well, I'm here. I might as well do this. And I did one race and I got the qualifying time to be in Olympic trials, which was the next weekend. And I'm (laughs) like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to come back for that. And yeah, I came back for that. Actually, in one of the 500 meters, I was paired with Leopolis Mueller, who went on to win a silver medal at the uh, Lake Placid Games. Wow. But in that race, in the Olympic trials, she set a track record. And being paired with her, you know, I'm kind of like, oh my God, you know, this is this awesome skater from the U.S. And I'm like paired with her. But she came up to me afterwards and said, if it wasn't for my fast start and getting her down the hundred faster, she would have never set the track record. And I'm like, oh my God, like she's congratulating me. (laughs) She just won the race and she's thanking me, you know, like, and you know, so that's kind of where the long track kind of started for me. But because I was eight, that put me like on the national team to go to like training camps and stuff like that. And although I kind of did that all along, kind of on the short track was where I was probably having a little bit more success, where in 1986, I won the world championships. But in short track, that still wasn't in the Olympics. They had decided in 88, it would be a demonstration sport. But also in 86, yes, I won the short track world, but now I'm starting to taste the success in the long track. And I started getting on the podium for the first time. So that's kind of where I'm like, okay, I won worlds at short track. That's great. Now I can just kind of leave that behind and now just focus on the long track. But yeah, you know, short track. Yeah, it was a blast. You got to, you know, not only have one plan of attack, you've got to kind of have two, three or four, because you never know what's gonna, <laughs> what's going to happen. But, right. um, you know, that that was the fun of it. And it was fun to compete against other people. But as I got better in the long track, you know, I realized that my main competitor was the clock at the end of the straightaway. And sure, you're, you're paired with somebody on the starting line. But in order to beat them, I always kind of felt I had to beat myself. And in order to do that, you got to beat the clock at the end of the straightaway. So it really kind of became a lot about personal best for me and challenging that clock versus who I was maybe really just on the starting line with. Yeah, that's a really cool explanation of the difference. I like that. We talked to Apollo back in episode 16 of the Pursuit of Gold, too, and he tells us about the craziness, yeah, of short track, too. So I kind of like hearing both of y'all's versions. So if our audience was to go back and listen to Apollo's, too, after this, he's episode 16. But um, okay. So I did. I I listened to it. Oh, yeah. I, I did, I did kind of catch a couple of them before we were going to chat today just nice. to know what I was going to be going up against. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. Well, challenge accepted. I love it. Well, okay. So I, 
I was looking back at like what you did with school and you started kind of traveling to Europe, I think, right? And you actually ended up doing kind of home, you got your high school diploma through the mail in 1982. And that was before, you know, now virtually virtual homeschooling is like this really common thing, especially with 2020 being so crazy. Um, but back then that was a little more uncommon. Like, how did you make that decision to really focus on training and to, to how did you do the high school? Like kind of tell us what that transition and decision making was like. Yeah, it, and it was, it was school through the mail. And, and partly that decision got made because my dad was going to be retiring and kind of in to get like grants or whatever to go to college if you were 18 by a certain date, you had to already be enrolled in college in order to qualify for grants and scholarships or whatever it was. And since my dad had retired and I was going to be 18 before this weird date, I had to finish my high school at like midterm my senior year. So I was still short two classes, but what I did was, so yeah, I, it was school through the mail. Like I would, I would, <laughs> yeah, like I, I would get a book and there were things that you had to like send in to somebody, you know, there wasn't like a computer then. So, you know, you would do these, and, you know, I think one was a math class and maybe one was like a psychology class, but I was just the two, you know, I had had enough credits that I only needed two classes in order to graduate. So it was just, okay, well, you just got to get these done. And I kind of like whipped through it pretty quick because then I had to, and I think I was doing that while I was doing my other classes during my senior year. Oh, you were doing it all the same time. I was doing it at the same time because then by midterm, of my senior year, that's when I had to start taking college classes. So I uh, did some college classes at our junior, or it was a junior college in Champaign, Parkland Junior College. And so I, I did that that semester. I did some in the summer. And then that was probably really about it. <laughs> then I needed to start traveling because of where skating was taking me. And I was kind of like, dad, like, okay. And, and he was kind of like almost the one more, the one instigating it. Like, well, you need to go to this training camp and, and you need to do this. So I don't know how you're going to go to school. And I'm kind of <laughs> like, yeah, I kind of don't know how I'm going to do that either. And, and so, yeah, then I, I maybe went back a couple of summers and got some summer classes in, and then the school was pretty helpful to me. And like I said, this was still kind of really before computers that they helped me kind of get like, once again, some stuff through the mail to get enough credits to where I wound up graduating to have a, an associate's degree, a two-year degree. Oh, okay. So I was able to do that through Parkland and they really worked with me to help me to do that because the school wasn't built like that. <laughs> like, of course, schools, a lot of the places weren't built like that till just recently of how to like help students do stuff while really not being in the class. So I was pretty lucky that they helped me do that. And, you know, at least I could tell my kids I got a two-year degree. And, and then my husband, Dave, who is also a speed skater, he whittled away at it and it took him 16 years, but he finally graduated and got a full degree. That's awesome. 
And so, yeah, so at least we've kind of <laughs> had some schooling in our in our systems. So, yeah, I had a similar issue back in high school because, I mean, there were some like really elite gymnasts that would do homeschool or had some kind of alternative program like that. But it wasn't super common. And, and I wasn't that good of an athlete at the time. But um, I remember I finally kind of qualified for some international meets my senior year. But I had this opportunity to go to three weeks worth of meets in Europe. And my school was super strict on absences. And they said they wouldn't let me graduate if I missed more than, you know, five or eight days or something of school. And I was like, I've got three weeks of trips in Europe to do. And so my parents found this alternative school for me. I had the same thing. I had two credits left. I had to finish these two credits. But it was like the school for people who have like punched their teacher or got caught in with drugs. Like it was it was a very interesting right. experience too. You know, I was like a straight A student and I'm like, okay, this is a little unusual. <laughs> but, but yeah, got the it teachers done. Probably- teachers probably thought it was unusual to have you too. Like, okay, well, this is a different, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) it was a different way. It was an experience. Um, We'll call it that. (laughs) Right. Well, you know, and it, and it's weird too, because let's take like a gym class where, and you know, and I've had this with my kids, if they've had to miss school or whatever for their, you know, my son Grant played hockey, my daughter Blair, she was a gymnast before then she turned speed skating. And so at certain times they'd have to miss school. And, but the gym teachers were almost worse than a math teacher or an English teacher where they would give them things to do. And here you're going somewhere for athleticism, (laughs) which is kind of being done at a high level. And they're making them come in after school and make up the days that they weren't there. And you're like, sure, like, come on. It's like, like, yeah. I, it, and, and I get, you know, there's other kids that are just blowing the class off for whatever, but come on, like, <laughs> you know, let's get real. I'm but right whatever. With you. I know. Yeah. So crazy. Yeah. So, all right, we're past high school. At 19, you make your first Olympic team, 1984 in Sarajevo. What was that first Olympic experience like for you? Oh, my God, like a kid in a candy store. <laughs> like, um, you know, so much fun. I, I think I, I heard you and Chelsea Memo talking about going through team processing and, you know, where you get one of these and four of those uh-huh. and two of these. And, <laughs> and, you know, so you get all the clothes and all that and opening ceremonies. Like walking into openings, like I got goosebumps just thinking about it right now. And my mom and two of my sisters were there and I was able to like pick them out of the stands. You know, I didn't know where they were going to be, but you know, I found them and I'm like, oh my God. Like, so just opening ceremonies was cool. The cafeteria to me was always the place to go because that's where you saw then all athletes from all sports. You know, you get kind of used to seeing your own athletes from your own sport, but you know, now I'm seeing guys like Phil Mayer and Steve Mayer and Scott Hamilton. And, and I remember one day getting to have lunch with those guys and they don't remember that, but this kid, you know, cause I was younger than them, this kid that was like, you know, an up and coming athlete at her first Olympics got to have lunch with those guys that I'll never forget. And I kind of tease them about it now, you know, like you really don't remember having lunch with me, you know? (laughs) It was um, not as memorable for you as it was for me. (laughs) Right. But it was really memorable for me, you know? So like just little things like that. And then, you know, of course, then there was the racing and, and I only qualified to be in the 500 meters, but I thought if I got anywhere near the top 10, 
that would be awesome. And I got eight. Like if you pro if they would have had a video of me still like having done that race, you probably would have almost thought like I won the race as I came across the finish line because I was so excited with like how close I was to everybody, like just finishing way above what I had anticipated. So, you know, yeah, I'm like, all right, well, I'm in this. Let's keep going. And, you know, I'm already looking forward to the next Olympics because this is fun. <laughs> it is fun. And I totally agree with you. Like the food tent, like the cafeteria is the best people watching place on the planet. Because like you said, there's like the best athletes from every sport and every country. And you get people like who you're like, I was oogling after like Michael Phelps. I'm like, oh my goodness, he's here. Well, he's running after Kobe Bryant, like a 12 year old fanboy. You know what I mean? So it's funny to see these people. We look up to like fanboying or fangirling other people too. It's awesome. Um, yeah, it, it really is. It was, it was the, the place to go for sure. <laughs> for sure. Well, okay. So you, you get this experience, you get eighth, you're like, that was amazing. You've totally kind of got this taste of it and you're hungry for more. And all of a sudden you start winning all of these things. You won events at the 84, 85 and 86 uh, short track world championships. You won the 86 overall short track world championships. Like, was this just that hunger coming out or was something changing in you? Yeah, I think there was a little bit of a change. You know, as I started kind of tasting the success, I started getting a little bit more diligent with my training. So I grew up in Champaign, Illinois. That's where I lived. And if you kind of lived wherever the coach was, then you could kind of like be with the coach and do some some of the workouts together, like in the summertime I'm talking about. And well, you know, there was Diane Holm who coached Eric Hyden, lived in the Chicago area. The other coach that was uh, like the, part of the national team coach with Diane, Mike Crow lived in Butte, Montana. And, you know, and I remember I'd get like one sheet of paper would be the entire month of training. So it would be written kind of on like a month and then there would be different things in each day of what you're supposed to do. Well, first of all, I didn't even understand what half of the stuff meant. <laughs> and, you know, and I'm living in Champaign and I'm kind of by myself and, you know, I'd like, okay, I see a bike ride for, you know, well, I can go ride my bike. Well, you know, like, is that like intensity? I don't know how to do that. But so I gradually started doing more and more workouts and and I started learning, obviously, what they were and how to do them and things like that. So as I started doing more of these workouts, I started seeing more results getting better. And like Mike Crow had said to me, he was the coach in Montana. He was like, well, you know, now you're kind of a student of the sport. He's like, you know, in school, if you do your homework, you get good grades. If you're an athlete and you do the training, you're going to get good results on the playing field. Right. You know, because, yeah, I was living at home. I I enjoyed being with my my friends. And if our, you know, high school basketball team was having a game or football, you know, I want to go with them and my friends and be there, you know. So I'll admit I I was, I was lazy. I'd like... <laughs> see something, oh, maybe I don't quite understand what that is. So, oh, maybe I'll do that tomorrow. Or, you know, I was kind of like that. But as I started doing more and being more diligent about it, you know, I started seeing the results. I started seeing that clock tick better numbers. And so that to me was fuel for my fire. So it was really self-learning on, on how to be better. 
And then, you know, then I, I had a sister that lived in Chicago and I go and stay with her for, you know, a couple of weeks at a time and then train with Diane Holm and the other kids that were in the area. So then there were times where I'd kind of join up with, with some groups here and there, even though maybe it wasn't necessarily a specific training camp, but we pretty much always had a training camp at the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs for like three months in August. And so I would always go to that, but I'd be like so sore because I probably hadn't been doing a lot of the workouts <laughs> I was supposed to be doing, you know, in those early on years. But, you know, definitely got better about it. And and then I did have another, I say older gentleman, but, you know, at the time he wasn't that much. He was still older than me, but he was a short track skater. and he would do a lot of the workouts with me in Champaign. But, you know, I was doing more of the long track stuff, but he was still skating short track. And he's like, this stuff's good for me to do in the summertime too. So I did at one point then have somebody that I could kind of at least lean on. And then you get both of you to get out there to do the stuff, which was good for the both of us. Right. I think that's really important. I like what you pointed on too. Like you said, when you got more diligent and it sounds like more consistent, you started to see the results and people sometimes forget. It's not like doing all these amazing things all the time. It's like doing the little things, the details, the stuff that people don't always want to do, like you said, but if you're doing it consistently and you're being intentional, you do start to see the results from that. And that's a good point. Yeah, exactly. So what was it like then going into your second Olympic games and how was that kind of different from your first experience? It was quite a bit different just for the fact that now I'm a medal hope. Like I had said earlier in 1986, I started getting on the podium. And so now going into the 88 games in Calgary, now I'm a medal hope. So, you know, now you got... Did you like that or hate that? Like, how did that make you feel? It was a learning process. Let's put it that way. Because speed skating, our sport was kind of looked at every four years And then we were always expected to win medals. In Sarajevo, we didn't come away, our sport didn't come away with any medals. So that was kind of sad for our sport, so to speak. But on the flip side, you know, now here you've got myself, you've got Dan Jansen, Nick Thomas, Eric Flame. There were, you know, probably a good, you know, four of us that were kind of being sought after by the media. So, you know, the Sports Illustrated, uh, I was on Life Magazine, and then like one interview after, like, I remember that year going into 88, Sports Illustrated sent three different interviewers to interview me prior to the Olympics, prior to even writing an article. And I'm like, what's the deal? Like, how many times could I spend time with these guys and keep telling them, like, I feel like the exact same thing. You know, it's, I haven't murdered my brother. I had, you know, <laughs> and maybe that was part of it. I had like, I hadn't done something wrong to like, I just don't know what it was. So that was pretty frustrating. And the other frustrating part was when photographers would come along and go, Oh, well, just one more lap. Well, one more lap on a 400 meter track is when we're already training. Like I said, it was a learning experience where I started to learn I need to manage because we didn't have somebody with U.S. speed skating who was a media person who handled any of this. Right. To kind of protect you guys. Yeah. Yeah. So 
it was really self-taught of how to manage it. So that was an eye-opening experience for me, but and a learning experience. But you know, then as things got on, then I like you you learned how to deal with it and go, okay, like if you're gonna be shooting pictures, like you better get some now because you're only going to get that one lap at the end of practice because that one lap's not going to turn into like 15. Like I'm a sprinter and I don't want to do 15 more laps. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, so, I mean, even with all that kind of pressure, you walked away with a gold and a bronze at those games. Like walk us through that experience. You, your first, first Olympics was amazing. You said you're like a kid in a candy store. You're soaking it all in. And this one, you like do the dream, you know, what, what was that like? Yeah, that gave me goosebumps again. And Calgary was there was a, there was a lot there. Like like I said, there was only three family members in Sarajevo. Now coming to Calgary because it's like right over the border of the U.S. Now that number like of family and friends grew to twenty five. And so then the media dubbed them the Blair Bunch. They all <laughs> came in what these they were called paper jackets. They were jackets made out of paper that you know, they had Bonnie Blair on them or whatever. And so they all looked the same and they all found places to stay. Calgary had done a thing where they did like a lot of bed and breakfast type things for family members. And they had so many that it wasn't just being offered to your like parents. So almost everybody that went on behalf of Bonnie Blair stayed at somebody's house for like a bed and breakfast type thing. Wow. And you know, even to this day I'm I'm still good buddies with where my sister stayed. And when we go back up to Calgary, I always hook up with them. But so that was like a cool thing. Once again, it was great to like hang out, you know, in the cafeteria and see like (laughs) Katerina Vitt and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But we also had a, a difficult time with U.S. speed skating too, in the sense that Dan Jansen, who was skating in the week prior to me, his sister died of leukemia on the day that he was to race his 500. You know, and our team is pretty tight. In fact, I was actually at DJ's house the day he learned his sister had leukemia. DJ and I go so far back that our families knew each other before either one of us were born. So that's how far we go back with each other. So, So yeah, so that was a difficult thing to deal with as a team for your friend, him falling, him falling again in the thousand. Like, you know, I couldn't even remember the last time DJ fell. But, you know, then part of it too, now I've got to like put that out of my head because now I've got to skate and I can't let those things seep into my brain. And I think I was pretty good at at compartmentalizing stuff. And I knew that kind of when I got to the rink, it's me and whatever. And prior to my my race in the 500, the East Germans were really my big competitors. And Krista Rothenberger had gone in two pairs prior to me and set the world record. So now in order for me to win, which I had been winning, I had beaten her head to head two weeks prior at the world championships in Milwaukee. So, you know, now in order for me to win a gold medal, not only do I have to go faster than I've ever gone, like I've got to set a world record in order to beat her. No pressure. (laughs) I got to go faster than I, so that's just a little bit of pressure. But my, my coach, Mike Crow at the time 
came up to me on the back stretch as I'm getting ready to go take my warm-ups off to get ready to go to the starting line. And he's got his pad of paper and he's calculating and he's like, you know, what you did this week in training, that lap time's faster than what and I kind of yeah, I he was so nervous and I just kind of looked at him and I'm like, I know. And I like <laughs> skated away from him because I'm like, okay, like he's like gonna drive me nuts. Like I know what I need to do. Like, I don't need you to tell me anything or whatever. Like, and he was nervous and like, I just knew I had to get away from him. And um, typically Krista is faster than me at the hundred meter mark. And usually where I could get her is in the lap. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I don't hear a lot when I'm skating, but for some reason I can tune in to the announcers whatever country I was in and I could like hear what my split time was. And when I got down the hundred meter, I heard that my split time was faster than what Krista's was. And I knew that if I could skate the lap that I normally can, I can beat her. And we wound up having the exact same lap time. So I beat her by two one hundredths of a second down the hundred. Wow. That's what I beat her by at the end of the race. So yeah, world record gold medal, like all the things, <laughs> all, all of it. And, you know, and people do ask, like, is there one that is different than the other? And for sure, having done something for the very first time has an unbelievable power and emotion behind it. That's hard to capture again. And that's not to say my other wins weren't thrilling and exciting. They were in their own little way. But doing that thing for the very first time is a very powerful moment. And that was what made that 500 at the Calgary Olympic Games probably the most special in the various moments that I've had in my career in speed skating. Oh, that's so cool. And you were chosen after that to carry the American flag at the closing ceremonies, too. Was, oh, is that cool? Yeah, that, it, that was very cool. However... Calgary was kind of a, a warmer Olympics and they had all these Chinooks that came in that, you know, they didn't have a lot of snow. So they put down this white sand on <laughs> the infield to make it look like there was snow. Movie magic. To carry huh? this, yeah, to carry <laughs> this heavy flat flag and walking in the sand was no easy task. So it was definitely an honor. It was a very big challenge as well. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. Wow. I never knew that. Okay. I love hearing the the behind the scenes. That's awesome. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, so after the 88 games, you, you tried something a little different. You did some track cycle racing. Like what, why? What would just to get out of the, I don't know why. why? <laughs> yeah, it was, um, I had uh, Connie Periskevin Young, who was a speed skater and was with me at the 84 Olympics, um, had always kind of done both speed skating and cycling. She's a world champion in cycling. She's better on the bike than she was on ice. But she always was kind of putting this bug in my ear, like, oh, you should come try track cycling and da 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 da. So I'm like, okay, you know, I'll give this a go. Like, what the heck? So it was the summer, or no, I guess it was a year after that. I think it was the 89 season. And so I thought, all right, I'll try this. Why not? Where it was very fun. And, you know, that's kind of a little bit more like a uh, short track. You know, there's cat and mouse t 
type thing in between of trying to, uh, when do you go? When don't you go? Do you sit on somebody? Do you pass them when you, you know, it's, it's the, the thrill of competing against somebody. So that kind of brought me back to my short track days and where it was thrilling and exciting to kind of do something else. I didn't have the killer instinct on the bike that I had on my skates because I felt like if I crash on the bike, there could possibly go my skating career. And so where I did it for one summer and actually at the national championships, it was the best two out of three races. And we raced three races and they were taking, and this was for third and fourth, and they were taking the top three to go to the world's. And for the third and fourth position, there were, you know, these three races that went best out of three. And the third one was, took 15 minutes for them to decide who won. (laughs) And I'm cooling down on my bike thinking, I'm supposed to go to Colorado Springs for a training camp like tomorrow. Like, (laughs) I'm not planning on going to France to go to the world championships. So when they actually announced that the other girl won, I was so relieved because, you know, like I said, it was nice and fun to do something different, but yet I knew I didn't have what it took to be the best in that sport because I had another sport. So yeah, it it was fun to do it, but yeah, it just, it wasn't for me. Did you keep doing it at all just for like training, like to have a cross training thing to do? Yeah. So, so then cycling has always been a big cross trainer for our sport in the summertime when we're not on the ice. So yeah, still to this day, you know, now I ride the bike with my kids and I'm drafting off of them. But yeah, cycling's always been in the mix. It was just that summer that I tried racing with it. Okay, so walk me through these next few years. You have a little stint in cycling, but you're very thankful that you didn't get chosen to go to Worlds because you're ready to get back on the ice and skate some more. So walk me through these next couple of years because I know there was some difficulty going into 92. Yeah, and, and I think even right prior even to the cycling stuff, I had kind of taken a year to do a little bit more schooling because I still really hadn't finished. And I was living in Butte, Montana then. And so I thought, okay, well, I'm going to try to just focus more on some schooling and get some skating in when I can. Because Butte had a track, but it was outside. So you're limited when you could skate. You know, you kind of had to wait a little bit more for the elements. But there was like a World Cup in Butte that year, another one in Calgary, which was drivable. And then the World Championships were in Holland. So I thought, you know, I'll just do those three competitions and kind of just take it easy. Not totally get away from the sport, but just throttle it back a little bit. And once I like you know, I started doing some racing and went to Calgary. And then we had another World Cup in Butte. And I'm like, oh my God, like, what am I doing? Like, this is so much fun. Like, (laughs) why am I only doing like three competitions this year? So (laughs) that was kind of another thing for me that, yep, I'm jumping back in hook, line and sinker and we're going for 92. So yeah, so because I did even have success that year, even though I had throttled it back, I was still pretty consistent on the podium. I might have won the world championships that year. Uh, and I probably should know this, but I'm sorry. I, I like don't. that you've won so many you don't know. <laughs> but yeah, so I, then I knew that I'm jumping back in full throttle 
it's going to be all about training and I can do the school again later. So yeah, so then leading into 92, my coach, Mike Crow, kind of during part of that time was kind of, he was then throttling back. So then he wasn't there as much. And I think not seeing a lot of the training of what we were doing. And, you know, the year before the Olympics, the clock wasn't reading what numbers I wanted it to, but I still thought I had what I needed. So then I kind of, I took a leap of faith and changed coaches. And so now with my new coach, Pete Mueller, we are kind of doing things a little bit different, but he was there a lot of the time, very engaging, very like a rah-rah kind of guy. And yeah, now I found myself back to battling the clock and things were going great. And yeah, wind up coming away from the 92 games with two, uh, two more gold medals now. Those were outside also took part in the 1500 meters at well and even actually at the 88 games I took part in the 1500 meters and was fourth but the 1500 meters was more of a race that I did for training to make my thousand better so I didn't really train for the 1500 but the 1500 I skated a ton of but it was more for training for my thousand but I was still having pretty good success in it and sometimes getting on the podium with it, it I just wasn't as consistent with that race but yeah uh wound up coming away from the 92 games with two more gold medals uh in the 500 and the thousand and my dad had passed away in between the 88 and the 92 games and you know he was a big reason of why not that I stuck with the sport but that he was always there and encouraging and kind of that one that maybe put that light bulb in that kid's head that, to say like, okay, like, I think you're pretty good at this. You should keep going. And my dad was a man of very few words, but he was somebody that when he said something, he, he, he meant it. And I remember one time he introduced me to a new coworker of his and I was probably like, you know, 17, 18, right around in there. And he's like, yeah, this is my daughter, Bonnie, and she's going to be in the Olympics and she's going to win an Olympic medal. And I'm like, you know what? Like, first <laughs> of all, my dad's a man of few words. And second of all, like, I hadn't even been in the Olympics yet. So like, what is he talking? But, you know, as a kid, you're just like, ah, that's, he's just trying to like impress this guy or something and kind of went in one ear and out the other. But then those years later, like that, I never forgot that he said, you know, I can still remember the day of being in his office and where we were and, you know, it was never talked about, but yet he like somehow envisioned this. So for me to be able to win in 88 after he had been diagnosed with cancer and, and to be there and, and see it all, that was pretty special. But the 90 he had passed away in 89 and wasn't there in 92 and so that first medal that i won there you know was dedicated in his memory because he was a big part of why i had been doing it I love that. And, you know, kind of what you're saying, like you didn't really realize what he was doing at the time, but it obviously stuck in your head and probably just knowing that obviously somebody you love and care about and, and look up to believes so much in you. I'm sure that kind of embedded itself, you know, in your brain, your heart somewhere too, you know, as you're going forward. That's pretty cool. Yeah, for sure. And then it's like, well, did he see, like, what did he see? How did he envision this? You know, it's, um, 
but yeah, but whatever it was, I, I'm I'm glad I stuck with it. <laughs> That's so cool. I love it. Was was it hard at all? I mean, you have all these things like your father not being there, and um, you you are the defending Olympic champion going into '92. Like, was that a hard? Because I mean, you had the pressure of they expected you to medal in '88, but now here you've already medaled and you're expected to do it again, probably, and maybe not just so much the media, but maybe you. I mean, what what is that kind of pressure, and how do you handle that? Yeah, I I guess, you know, once again, I kind of like would let it go in one ear and write out the other and kind of when then you get on the ice or you're in, you know, specific trait, like that's what I'm thinking of. You know, if I went to the starting line thinking, okay, people are picking me to win, (laughs) I'm going to be beat before the gun goes off. (laughs) So, you know, I've really got to be able to zone in and focus on that task at hand right then and there. You know, I was pretty like good at being able to do that. Like just kind of throw everything out. And like, I see it in my daughter, she can do the exact same thing. Like just like be kind of joking around, do this and that. And then all of a sudden, boom, focus. Flip that switch. Yeah. Yeah. You can just flip that switch where, you know, like then I I take for, for instance, somebody like Dan Jansen, he's very good at, he could visualize an entire race and take like a stopwatch and start it and then skate through it and cross the finish line. And it be like the exact same time. Mine would be like my 500 was, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 39 seconds. I'd hit the stopwatch at like 22. Like I I was not good at visualizing stuff, yet DJ was. So I think that's so important for for athletes to and anybody to realize that everybody gets there a different way and everybody has their own path. And what works for one person doesn't necessarily work for another. So where DJ could really visualize stuff, I'm like, "Ah, no, let's just go right. You know, I think I race so much that those were my, my visualizations or whatever, or like my husband, you know, he could get done with a race and be able to go through each step by step and know exactly what he did. Well, I need to like watch a video and go, oh yeah, <laughs> what happened? I can kind of remember there. And I do remember that part, but yeah, like it's just a blur to me. And that's a good thing. I, I'm not complaining about it, but I don't think you can necessarily teach somebody that you, I think you either kind of have it or you don't. Maybe I could have worked more at the visualization of stuff and done that, but I kind of like looked at that and worked with some sports psychologists and I'm like, are you guys trying to catch me in something? (laughs) Like I, you know, I, I kind of felt like it was just something I didn't need, but like on the flip side, if DJ hadn't been working with a sports psychologist, he probably wouldn't have won that last thousand meters that he skated in Lillehammer. So, you know, once again, everybody's different and you go through these different, these different scenarios of how to get that ultimate success. Right. And I I think you make a great point there that we all have different strengths and weaknesses. And I think it's really good to try things like you tried visualizing, you worked on that, you know, and like you said, maybe you could have worked on it more, but, but you recognize that your strengths were in other places and you really were all in on what your strength was. And I think that's really important for people, for athletes, especially to take stock on, okay, what am I really good at? And, and not in a, 
you know, arrogant kind of way, but like taking your, you know, honest look at yourself. What am I really good at? Where am I weak? Maybe work on the weaknesses, but really hone in on your strengths. Cause that is a good thing to do too, to really own that. Cause that's good. What's going to take you to that next level is not going, Oh, I'm not good here, but it's really honing in on what you are good at. Yeah. You got to focus on the positive. Yes. Yeah. For, for sure. sure. Well, so, okay, you come out of the 92 Olympics, um, like the most decorated U.S. woman in Winter Olympic history. (laughs) Right, but now we get that two-little-year switch. They decided to offset the Olympics. Now, did you know about that before? When was that decision made? It was made, like, right around... So, kind of when the 92 was over with, I already knew I was going to go to 94. So, they must have kind of made it about right around the 92 games or some maybe a little bit before it but yeah like and it was to stagger the summer and winter olympics right because they used to be in the same year but this was we would be in the same year and so now that they would have you'd have your kind of each olympics would have their own year to stand on i always said we were a warm-up for the summer games because (laughs) we would be you know in february and then the summer would come right after us and i think it was kind of nice for the winter athletes to kind of have their own year to stand on so yeah, but we were the first ones to make the switch. So so yeah, so we went ninety two, ninety four, and I'm like, well, I'm going to keep going. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, DJ's two years is very reasonable. Yeah, yeah, two years is very different than four. So yeah, so I kind of already knew I was going to keep going. Yeah, for sure. That's so cool. And so, what was that? I mean, was it like a? I mean, did it almost feel like the snap of a fingers just having two years between games instead of four? Because four right, years can yeah. feel like an eternity, <laughs> right? Yeah. And now, once again, ninety ninety uh, three, the clock's not reading what I wanted to. That so dark clock, I man. Still, <laughs> I know. So, and I was still being trained by Pete at that time, but I'm pretty sure I got overtrained. And you know, where where you know, like I said, I you know, I, I had Diane Holm, I had Mike Crow, I had Pete Mueller, then I wind up having Nick Thomas. All these different coaches really gave me something at a time when I needed it, right? So so you know, I take a lot of what they instilled in me and and what they brought to the table. But there's times where then you just need a change. And so now going into the 94 Olympics, I'm making another coaching change. And now Nick Thomas, who had retired from skating and had gone into coaching, a lot of the stuff that worked for Nick in training had always worked for me. And granted, he had never been a coach before. This is a brand new thing. I'm like, I'm jumping ship. I'm going with Nick and let's see what happens. Was that scary? It was, but on the flip side, I also knew what I was doing wasn't working. So I knew I had to make a change. And so changing to Nick, we were going to back off on, you know, I think a little bit with Pete, we always thought more was better, more laps, more bike rides, more weights, more this, more that. And, you know, now I'm getting older and I think that wasn't meshing with me. And so we backed with Nick, we backed off quite a bit. We focus, we started focusing more on the technical aspect, which was, had always been one of my strengths. And so that we, you know, we cut back on and we were focusing on the quality of our work instead of the quantity. And so, you know, now I found myself back to battling the clock. And now that clock was reading numbers that, you know, I felt in my mind and body that I could be doing. And now I'm skating times I hadn't skated in probably since the 88 games. 
And I had still had the world record in, in 1988 that I'd set at the Olympic Games. And so, you know, I'd been constantly, and now is a time of 38 point or 39.10. And, you know, so I wanted to try to get back to close to that. But yeah, so back to battling the clock, feeling better, not just the 500, the thousand, they're both going really well. And now the Olympics is right around the corner. And, you know, I remember sitting on the bus with Nick kind of pulling into Lilyhammer. He know he said, you know that you're kind of really being sought after of coming into these games and and winning and I'm like, yeah, I know, but I'm like, I'm not really that worried about that. Like, I'm going to go out there and do the best job that I can. What What do you mean by being sought after by other competitors or by like endorsements or in what way? I think a little bit like, you know, because endorsements were more prevalent now in this day and age. Once again, the media and this and that. And, and you know, we had gotten better about dealing with the media and all that. And I think the other thing, too, is he's like, plus, you realize if DJ wins, it's going to be huge. And I'm like, well, yeah, but like, I want DJ to win. <laughs> like, you know, like, I want to win, but I want DJ to win, too. So, yeah. So, I mean, there was a lot to that. But but I think he just wanted to make sure we were on the same page. And I'm like, no, like, I'm going to get out there. I'm going to do the best job I can. Whatever happens, happens. Like, only person I can control is me. I can't control what the media does. I can't control anything else. Like I've just got to focus on me and skating. And DJ did win. Oh my God. It was one of the most exciting moments ever. (laughs) However, he stumbled in the 500 and didn't win the race that he was programmed to win, which everybody thought he was going to win because he slipped again. But my boyfriend at the time, now husband, was also in that 500 meter race. And so, yeah, I was in the stands. But however, every time the gun went off, my heart was just pounding. It was stressful being there. So my 500 was the day after DJ's thousand. And so I knew just myself, I couldn't go to the rink that day and watch DJ live and in person because it was too stressful. And I like, I needed my own energy. I had to, now I got to be selfish. Right. But we watched it on the live feed back in the sports media room. And this is kind of funny too, because so we're watching it, the other girls that I'm racing with my boyfriend, soon to be husband, Dave, we're, we're all there. And of course we're jumping up and down and I'm like, Oh my God. Like now I'm thinking, okay, like he's not coming back to the Olympic village. Like I'm not going to get to see DJ before I race. And now this is kind of bothered. Now that's bothering. Like, okay. Like I need to share in this excitement with him. And I know you've been on the whole journey with him. Yeah. And so now I hear the, we're in the sports med room watching in the live feeds because they kind of had their own little house. And I hear the walkie talkies cackling. And I'm like, because there's no cell phones. Like, this is how people communicated back then. And I hear that they've got DJ going to drug testing. And I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, can I talk to DJ? Like, I grabbed one of the walkie talkies that's only for the sports <laughs> med people. And I'm like, can I talk to DJ? I just want to talk to him for a little. So they they wind up getting him. And there's they're like, there's somebody really important who wants to talk to you. 
And he thought it was going to be the president of the United States. Because <laughs> <laughs> oh. that was back in the day where the president actually usually called somebody to congratulate him. <laughs> so, no, it was just me. And but like I needed to like share that excitement with him. It was priceless. Like it was just so special to, you know, like I said, if I could have been in two places at once, it would have been. It would have been really cool. And, you know, yes, I walked away from that Olympic Games with two more gold medals, but DJ's win was huge and was one of the most exciting moments for me at the Olympic Games. And to this day, we're really good buddies. I talked to him the other day on the phone where he's my younger brother that I never had. But yeah, so it like it was it was priceless. So yeah, that probably went a direction you didn't think was going to go. But. <laughs> I, I, I love that. Those are the best conversations. But I, no, I, I love all of this stuff because you're talking about how you can only control you. You have to do what's best for you in those moments. But at the same time that you're there and you have this mission and you're on this journey to win more gold, you are there for your longtime friend, for this epic moment for him. Because you know, for the people who don't know his history, he just had issue after issue. He lost his sister. It was like this dramatic thing. And he finally wins in the end for her. And it's just like this cool cool, cool moment. And you were there for all of that. And so I love that that was just as special to you probably as anything else that you had done. And I I just, there's something about that at the Olympics. It's just different from other sports. And it just, it seems to mean more. And it just seems to be, I don't know, maybe because it only happens every four years. So there are these more epic moments, but or every two years in this case, I guess, but still right. such, yep. such beautiful moments um, and that, that you still take that away with you to this day. I think that's just truly a special Olympic thing that you can't get anywhere else. Exactly. So then I'll share one more thing with you about Lily Hummer, unless you had other questions, but there is the, you know, where people say, you know, what did the medals mean to you? And, and so then winning my thousand, which was my last Olympic race, you know, standing on that podium, Yes, it was thrilling and exciting, but it was also kind of sad. That was because, like, I'm getting emotional now, but, you know, it was because I knew that, I knew that then I was going to be done. There wasn't going to be another Olympics, you know, but I just knew that it was over. Am I, like, hearing the national anthem, will I ever hear it as it's being played right now? I mean, probably not. You know, like, standing up, it was just like... I'm done. It's over. I'm never going to have this again. And it was kind of like a sad moment, even though there was still so much thrilling and excitement to it. But it was also kind of sad. And, you know, to this day, hearing the national anthem has a whole different meaning to me than I'm sure than it does to a lot of other general American public. That's really interesting how you described your very first win special because it was the first and the first is just always it's a brand new experience and this amazing moment and then your last to be so beautiful but bittersweet all at the same time um but you weren't done though i mean you were done at the olympics maybe you, you kept <laughs> right. you kept but I did, I, yeah, yeah so there was no more olympics but yet the very next year the world championships is in what is still my hometown now in milwaukee wisconsin and I knew I couldn't be a spectator. Like, I just love this sport way too much to think now the biggest competition of the season on a non-Olympic year is coming to my hometown. Like, no way, I'm going to keep training. (laughs) And I thought, obviously, nobody can ever see the future. And I can't predict what's going to happen 
I just knew I had to be there and be on ice and compete. Now, I was lucky enough to reap the awards of being another Olympic champion and, you know, kind of being pulled in different directions, but still getting good quality training in as much as I could. And and I, it wasn't like a guarantee that the world's coming, I'm going to win. But I want to be there. I want to be on ice. I want to, what was 60 members of the Blair Bunch and Lily Hammer is going to be bigger at home. And that wound up being like 300 members of the Blair Bunch. Yeah, I read it was 12% of the crowd in the arena. (laughs) Probably some, it might have even been more than that. I don't know. That's awesome. but, um, But yeah, like I knew I needed to be in the rink and competing. And then as it turned out, I wound up winning all four races, the world championships at home in front of 300 members of the Blair Bunch. And it was a great way to go out. And you went under 39 um, seconds in the 500. Yeah, I didn't do that here. Oh, I thought you did that. I did that a couple. I did it a couple weeks later in Calgary. That's so cool. (laughs) Uh, So even though that was kind of like the last like major championship, they had another one in Calgary, and and then yeah, like I mean, I I set a world record and then an American record in the thousand on my very last day of racing, which happened to be my thirty first birthday. So it ended on a perfect note. Yeah, to go that fast. And then, you know, in Calgary, it wasn't like it was like a major competition or it was just kind of like the their season and meet. And it's not like the Olympics, the stands aren't packed. There was maybe like 200 people there. So, um, but that's not why I did it. I did it because I loved it. The challenge of the clock, wanting to be the best that I could be chasing those personal bests. And to me, you know, that's just kind of what it was all about. And I, I think that's what sets you apart. I mean, for someone who can win, you know, six Olympic medals, five of them gold, I, I think you just summarized it right there. Then like, I, I retire a year later, I get married. Um, my husband winds up going to Japan and competes at the next Olympic Games. And I'm like five months pregnant or whatever. And so uh, Grant was actually really with us there. But but anyway, you know, then, you know, life does evolve. And what, so was it hard to be up, in the stands watching at that one? Oh, my God. And plus, I'm pregnant. I was emotional. <laughs> I did an interview with Harry Smith and I even got him crying because, you know, now I'm at the very next Olympics and I'm not part of it. And of course, I'm pregnant. I knew I couldn't have been part of it. But still, like part of you just... Even when the summer games are on, Laura, like it's just something in like I get so excited. Like I don't want to go to the grocery store. I want to like sit home and watch as much as the Olympics as I can. Like and there's it doesn't matter whether it's summer, whether it's winter. I'm an Olympic junkie. But then life does move on. And, you know, so Dave took part in four Olympic games. I was in four. We overlapped in three. And, you know, now we've got two kids and now we live our, we're living our life vicariously through them. Our son Grant plays division one hockey for Colorado college. And he's currently in a bubble competing right now. And he's in a bubble right now. (laughs) So he's actually getting to play. So there's a smile on his face and, but we can't watch, but we get to see it, you know, live stream. And then our daughter, uh, after being a competitive gymnast had to give that up at the ripe old age of 13 due to chronic wrist issues 
then kind of thought, well, maybe I'll start speed skating. And I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> sure. So anyway, for her, it's been a gradual process because she really didn't skate too much growing up. And when she did, she was on hockey skates. She really didn't know how to do crossovers. So it's been a big learning curve for her. But she was on our last three junior world teams. Wow. She's aged out of juniors now, so now she has to go against the big girls. So she's kind of caught in no man's land probably for a little bit. So this whole COVID thing's kind of come at a perfect time because, you know, and then she can just be training and we've got ice here in Milwaukee and probably for us, given that my husband's kind of coaching her as well as a couple others, I call myself the good helper or the video person or whatever. You know, we're going to the rink virtually every day. So even though we've kind of been on this like lockdown, our life as far as that goes has been pretty regular. Um, and even Grant, when he was home during the summer and training, a lot of the training you doing, you're outside. So like for us, things have been pretty similar. You just, you know, you just can't go anywhere else or go give somebody a hug or, you know, those things have been definitely difficult, but we've all been healthy and knock on wood, things are, are going in the right direction. And it's fun being a mom of kids that love their sports and are following their own journey. And I've loved every minute of it. I look forward to uh, like when the next game is and when they're going <laughs> to race. And yeah, it's just, it's a lot of fun. Well, I love it. Well, and I have to make a, a, a little note here that your your daughter, when she was in gymnastics, was at Chelsea Mimmel's parents' gym. And I, I just love the small little world of like Olympians that you guys know Chelsea. She was on our podcast. She was episode 17 right after Apollo. So, you know, all this like small little world here. So you guys can go check that out. But I have to ask you, because now I'm a mom too. I have four kids. Um, they're younger though. They're like nine and under. But what is it like in your shoes, watching your kids? Like, do you have a hard time saying stuff? Do you keep quiet? What is it like for them? Are they living in your shadow? Do they feel free to do their own thing? Like, is there, what is that kind of dynamic like? Cause me as a, as a concerned parent, I want to know. <laughs> yeah. Well, and especially, you know, now that Blair's skating and then her name's Blair <laughs> and like yeah. people think they, I named my kid Blair Blair. No, I'm like married. I have a different, technically different <laughs> last name. It's Blair Kirkshank, but it is like, it's crazy because her style of skating is crazy like me and like people that I've raced with that are coaches and they're like, oh my God, your daughter looks just like you. So, <laughs> you know, that part of it, but you know, she also knows what her mom did is not the norm. Number one, like, I mean, like it's, it's just <laughs> not every day to someone able to go win five gold medals in a bronze. I get like, I get that. She gets that. And she knows she's her own person. So she's been very good about, I think, Kurt, 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 Kurt. <laughs> Words Kurt. are hard. <laughs> yes. She's been very good about focusing. Compartmentalizing. Keep, yes. The there we go. So, um, you know, and Grant, the same thing. Grant always jokes like, oh, yeah, Bonnie Blair's son. Da, 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 da. <laughs> but, you know, there and then like I'll see something where there's some hockey kid and his hockey 
you know, his dad played hockey. And I'm like, oh, just like that. And they, because they said something the other day about, you know, Grant Crookshank being pretty fast. Well, his mom is Bonnie Blair. And I'm like, well, it's a good thing I wasn't slow. So like, you know, it just depends on how you want to look at it. You know, they get that. And like, you can't do anything about it. So you just got to get over it, move on. And, and like I said, they're just pretty good about focusing on their, their, their own selves and, and doing what they need to do and know that what I did was stupid, crazy. So, (laughs) um, if you can do better than that, like have at it by all means, that would be really cool. But you know, to try to think that you have to live up to something like that. It's just, it's not, it, that's not right. Uh, I love the way you put that. Bonnie, you're such a legend as an athlete. Like we all know that we can see that in your results. Like that's easy to see on paper, but I love that we've been able to show the audience what an incredible person you are, how how down to earth you are, how humble you are. I just think that speaks even louder volumes than your accolades and your medals and all of those things. So thank you for coming on here yeah, Yeah. and just sharing with us and being you and being real. Really appreciate that. Where can we follow you online? Well, I'm on Instagram and Twitter, although, you know, I'm old, so (laughs) I'm not very good about a lot of that kind of stuff, but I'm easy to find. I think I'm Bonnie Blair C. Like I said, it's just... um, I'm so far removed from the technology of today that I kind of, I miss that window. So I, I keep trying to catch up to it and trying to learn through my kids, but, but yeah, I do what I can and <laughs> yeah, I don't have all the followers that I need. I need like Ch- Chelsea Memel is, you know, getting her dad to do it. So maybe I can get there my you kids go. to we'll, get we'll, me more yes. followers. Or we'll make all whatever. the kids give their parents <laughs> tutorials for sure. But we'll make sure to right, link to yeah. it in the show notes so people can follow you when you do do post or get your kids to post for you. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Awesome. Bonnie, thank you so well, much for coming for on. Well, and, and good luck to you. And, thank you. you know, like, like we kind of talked about before, it's, it's really all about the love of doing something and then giving it everything you've got. And, you know, you've got that love and that passion and, and I wish you all the best and we'll be watching. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show. This allows us to keep bringing on amazing guests, and it also helps other athletes to find this show. Make sure to check out the show notes to follow us on social media and learn more about our awesome guest. To hear all of our amazing episodes, head on over to thepursuitofgold.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Pursuit of Gold is proud to be a Podigy production. That's all for now. Make sure to tune back in next week.